0: Hey, Bike Portland podcast listeners, your host Jonathan Maz here. I just wanted you to know that what you're about to listen to isn't a new episode. You might not realize, but we actually launched our podcast in 2013 when I co-hosted it with the wonderful Michael Anderson and Lillian Karabek. We published about 20 episodes between 2013 and 2016, and so what we're doing now is just re-uploading them all to our current host. You can find links to all our episodes at bikeportland.org slash podcast. So sorry for any confusion, and I hope you enjoy the episode.
1: Hello and welcome to the July 2013 episode of the Portland Foot Commuting Podcast, a Bike Portland production. I'm Lillian Carebake.
0: I'm Jonathan Moss, and I'm
2: Michael Anderson. Each month, the three of us dig deep into an issue that matters to Portlanders who get around using bicycles, buses, and other sensible tools.
0: <laughs> and we give it to you in the
2: time it takes the average Portlander to get to work.
1: Today we're talking about. Wait, we're only talking about one thing. That's right.
2: We are trying something new this month, Lily. We have because we've joined forces with Bike Portland. We're looking for ways to make the podcast less about the latest news, which is what we've been doing, because you can read that on Mike Perlin already. We're trying to move it towards more about something you can't find elsewhere, which is examination of a single issue. We're going deep into one subject. We're talking about something that kills about one Oregonian every day, something that kills more Oregonians than leukemia, than cancer of the brain, cancer of the skin, cancer of the liver, liver or cancer of the esophagus. Something that kills more Oregonians a year than emphysema, the flu, homicide, or terrorism. Something that kills about as many Oregonians as firearms, as pneumonia, as Parkinson's disease. It's our streets. Our roads are killing about one Oregonian every day. And that's kind
0: of weird, isn't it? Sounds so, weird to me. I wouldn't have expected it unless I checked it every day online and it was so close to this issue. I don't think that it's weird. I think
2: that it's completely normal for people to be hurt in the course of getting around, and that's just one of the costs of getting around. And I don't, uh, I, I, actually, I write about this too, and I'm happy to write about it. And I don't, certainly don't welcome death or anything on the roads that hurts people. And I've, I should say, I've never lost a loved one to the roads like too many people have. But honestly, I don't find it interesting to read about. I don't uh, find it strange. I don't find it unusual. I think it's just the cost of doing business.
1: I mean, would you say that, like, I mean, transportation's an inherent activity that everybody has to participate in, right? So is housing. Right. If houses were killing one Oregonian a day from roofs falling in because of poor standards, would you say that that's okay? Is I, that the cost of doing business?
0: I think, to some degree, I, I agree with what Michael said. But the question you have to ask is, are we doing enough to make sure that doesn't happen. In the same way of what Lily's point is, you know, do we have our building inspectors making sure they're checking permits to make sure that houses aren't falling on people? I think the answer to any sensible Oregonian in terms of the, the roadway safety part of that is, we're not. People can go super fast. They can drive cars anywhere they want. There's a lot of interactions that aren't as safe as they can be, so while I also agree that sometimes people running into each other, whether they're walking, biking, driving, whatever, That's to be expected. We'll never work that completely out of the system. The question that keeps me sort of up at night that I think about a lot is, are we doing enough to mitigate that, to make that happen less frequently, and especially make it happen less less frequently to people who are doing this great thing, which is getting out on foot, getting out, pedaling around? It might be useful to mention why we're even talking about this issue Mm -hmm. this month which is a spate of collisions several weeks ago on the streets of Portland. Uh, On Bike bike Portland, we decided to start covering those a little more closely in some detail with some photographs so that people could know the extent of the carnage that was happening uh, in the city and and around the the region. Um, In doing so, the topic itself really made a lot of people uncomfortable. I got several emails from folks saying it was sensationalism and that uh, you know, it's really not a topic that you should focus so much on because it scares people. So it, it had this, this really interesting ripple effect around the community just by talking about these things that are actually happening on the roads. So I think it's, from that perspective, interesting to sort of poke around this subject and understand more why people react the way they do when we talk about it, why there's such a difference of opinion, even among you know, journalists, among activists, and so on, uh, why there's such a difference of opinion about it. Um, I just think it's worth talking about.
2: Okay, well, I feel like it's uh, inherently difficult to talk about in any sort of systematic way because we're only, like, we, we, whenever we talk about a death on the road, it's like, oh, this is important because it was a death, but there's no way to put that in context. Like, we don't write every time we write about a death that this is one of 6,000 trips to work to, on this day by a bicycle or however many more in a car three hundred thousand, and we don't write about the fact that this is the safest city in the country some years it's almost never out of the top 10 safest cities in the country we have a very safe city by like american standards and i don't see why we shouldn't be happy with that
1: Mm. i guess i guess the key here is when we talk about the narrative you know there's this very common idea in the world of kind of planners and transportation advocates that we don't call we don't call collisions that you know we don't call them accidents we call them crashes because all crashes are preventable Mm -hmm. and the idea that they're an accident is that would create this narrative that there's nothing that we could do to change them and I think that this cost of doing business idea is saying that we've gotten to the point where we've accepted that no, all of the, all of the crashes that we have on our roadways are freak accidents and couldn't have been prevented by better design.
0: I think yes to most of those things. I think basically the key words of what Michael said a minute ago there was, uh, in the American context, right? That's the key because European cities went through a lot of these same things. Uh, they had a lot, a lot of deaths like we have on the road overall in the country. Uh, But they made more conscious decisions to do something about it, and now a lot fewer people die. And the flip side of that, so their roads are a lot safer. And the flip side of that is this sort of, I guess, opportunity cost, you could call it here in the U.S., where this isn't about just the loss of the people getting maimed and killed and injured. It's the fact that there's a perception, I think some of it based in reality, that our roads are not made for people to walk and bike, so they don't even participate in that activity mm-hmm. to begin with. And that's where the huge economic cost comes in. Right. Because like we see in these European cities that, are, that have made these choices to have safer roads, they have a great number of people bicycling, which has a huge impact on the efficiency of their system, costs a lot less to maintain, all these other things we can go on and on about. You know, America suffers from acceptance around this issue. Rain. It's fascinating to read... And there was an opinion article uh, in the Oregonian, sort of like when someone writes a letter and they give it a little more attention than just a letter to the editor. And the guy who wrote it emailed it to me uh, and saying how his son bicycles and he's so concerned he doesn't want his son to ride a bicycle and he's sort of like, because he was, he was afraid of, of the son's safety riding around, but his whole opinion was based on how we should just accept it and accept that cars dominate streets. And it was just really odd he had a son who was riding, but then he was saying we should accept it.
1: So we should so, accept that cars dominate streets and therefore no one should get around right, by bicycling, well, it, or we should accept that cars dominate streets and accept that X number of people are going to die at our roadways because cars dominate our urban landscape.
0: Yeah, his thing was just saying, it's basically like, you know, you're pushing a big rock up a hill here and it's just mm. too big of a problem. And the best thing you can do is sort of arm yourself, wear a reflective vest, and, and ride ride your bike really safely. And I just think that's wholly absurd right. to have that kind of outlook especially when you have your own flesh and blood riding around the streets right. and so when I emailed back to the guy I was like you know, I, you know thanks for the email but I respectfully absolutely disagree with what you're saying right. because we have a choice to make about what kind of cities we want to live in and if we just accept what's happening now where people are afraid to go out on the street then that's what we're going to get and frankly I don't accept that right. so and, and what I, do we do to change that so, dynamic
2: so this, this is the last thing I'm going to say on my thread but the that that's exactly what I I feel like the the ultimate conclusion of somebody who uh, of somebody who's prioritizing safety is going to be the position that he has is that the only way we can prevent all safety is to like enclose ourselves in like giant bouncy rubber balls or something you know or never leave our house or something else would be terrible and so ultimately like saying that we have to prevent all deaths like this this concept of vision zero that people kick around sometimes that which we is should the it,
1: idea that there is zero that we're aiming for zero deaths on roadways zero
2: That's, deaths on a roadways right that that seems to me like making that the most important variable is to make death more important than anything else in life and that life is more important to me than death and that life should be pleasurable and so what mm-hmm. i love about bicycling and active transportation and public transit in general is that it increases my life you know it makes me live more fully it's not that it lengthens my life it's not that it prevents my death and so I feel like if you're going to live your life afraid of death, then of course you're going to try and encase yourself in steel, but that's not going to be much of a life.
1: Well, and, but I mean, so this, this goes really well into what we want to talk about this kind of, this narrative. How much should we focus on death? Like how important is it for the media to be covering roadway deaths? So people are aware that they are happening or instead, is it more important that we focus on covering, you know, covering, especially active transportation? from a very like life life-based narrative like it's sort of the Sunday parkways kids on tricycles versus the ghost bike sort of idea
0: well i mean the two words that come to my mind when i hear you say that are complacency and reflective sort of reactive action and those two things define portland's approach to traffic safety in the last many years that i've been here first of all if you take that approach of hey, there's great stuff happening, kids are biking at Sunday Parkways, and all, only mentioning all these positive things, you perpetuate this really toxic concept, which has hurt Portland's ability to do great things, which is complacency. The people that make policy, and that we elect to do leadership, uh, have this, con- come to this conclusion that the streets are great, and they work for everyone, because I saw it in Sunday Parkways brochure, and that's what i hear from advocates. So that's that's one piece, and I think, as an aside to that, I don't think that's true. I think Complacency is why we're not doing the big things, we're sort of losing our lead in being a great transportation city. And on the, on the reactive part of that, in terms of, you know, should we cover this stuff and how much, I mean, the, the reality, the truth of the narrative over the last several years in Portland around transportation is that when people's deaths have been made very public, the biggest transportation changes have happened. That's what got us the bike boxes. That's what got us you know, an emergency meeting from Sam Adams, which resulted in $200,000 for a bunch of green paint. That's what recently got us a meeting of, of Mayor Hales and Commissioner Novick and Chief of Police and all these other people in City Hall to talk about the issue. So it just goes to say, if, if but I agree there's a balance. Right. Obviously, we don't want to be trumpeting death and destruction all the time, and that's a really tricky thing to balance. And From my perspective as someone who publishes a website about this stuff, uh, the reason why I think it's important to cover is because that signal hasn't been heard strongly enough and I base it on people's actions and until that signal I think is heard by people that matter that make these decisions, I think it's important to keep talking about it. Do I lead with it? Am I a big advocate for uh, Vision Zero? Absolutely not because I see the peril in that. You know, I also think vision zero from a policy standpoint is kind of silly, yeah, because it doesn't really mean anything. And
1: don't don't yeah. don't lay your policy objective out with something that's probably going to be impossible to achieve. Right. The something that I'm interested around this whole narrative shaping and getting things done is, as someone who has previously worked at a bicycle advocacy organization. Um, But also, I subscribe to the mailing list for a ton of other cities' sort of BTA equivalents. So the San Francisco Bicycle Coalition, uh, the Active Transportation Alliance in Chicago. So I see the way that they're pushing these things out to their members. You still see action alerts, like, really regularly from the San Francisco Bicycle Coalition that are like, a cyclist died at 18th and Mission, we need to fix this intersection. And you don't see those kind of pushes From bicycle advocacy groups in Portland, like Community Cycling Center, the BTA, none of them are pushing out, like,
0: you know, very,
1: very action based, death oriented things. And the last time they really did was when we got the bike boxes. That was, I mean, really the last time. Instead, they're talking, they're more project based, Mm -hmm. and the projects aren't really linked to deaths or, you know, injuries. Whereas, like, Oregon Walks is still I feel like a lot of their action alerts are still very based around a child was mm. hit and killed walking across the street.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point about how local advocacy groups are reacting. I think there's two things that sort of maybe speak to that. Like you sort of already mentioned, one of the big ones is just strategy. The BTA just strategically, that's not how they roll. They do not do sort of reactive we're going to go stand on a corner where someone got hit and stay there until it's fixed. They don't do that kind of thing. I'm hoping maybe in the future they will, but at this point they don't. Um, And the other thing I think that might be different, and we talked about this uh, previous to the show about uh, things like the right of Silence and Ghost Bikes and how those don't quite have as large of an endorsement here in Portland. They don't quite create as much uh, energy in Portland as other cities. I think maybe part of the reason why is because in those other cities, there's even more of a feeling of helplessness among activists. They just don't have the things to plug into that make them feel like they can do something about it. Right. So when these things like the Ride of Silence come up, they're there. Like That's, that's how they're going to plug in to make a difference. We're here in Portland. We have a lot of other outlets where people that care about this stuff can get involved. We have mature advocacy groups. We have a mature website that captures a lot of this stuff. We have a really great Department of Transportation that will, uh, you know, Actually, two three call you safe back. and yeah, yeah they'll call you back there's some level of engagement where people feel like they can be heard so it sort of diminishes their you know uh, their excitement to or their energy to go respond to some major major call to show up right. to something
2: so right. the yeah. rite of silence is an annual event i'm actually not familiar with it
0: yeah it's an annual event based on the idea that uh, it's very sobering and somber it's very quiet and it's just a remembrance of those who have been lost mm-hmm. you know it's sort of like uh and i have I have mixed feelings about it. I think it's it's a sort of a selfish phenomenon among people that ride bikes to get all this attention on death. Hmm. And what ends up happening in the news is that you have all this coverage of when you bike, you die, right. which can be, like we said, perilous in terms of balance and getting more people to ride. So I've posed the question to Ride of Silence. And literally
2: more perilous because if you don't have people riding, then you have more death.
0: Right. Exactly, right. exactly. And that, that's the balance, and I think that ride is specific is especially tricky because there's no balance at all the whole right. thing is based upon right. these people died and then so all the local media loves it because it's a chance to talk about death and tragedy and they just that's what they get right. clicks for and it's a very so. i
1: mean it's a very easy media sell even outside yeah. of the death, because it's a, it's the a simple type story. of ride it's yeah right. it's a yeah. simple story yeah right um and the right of Silence was previously organized by the BTA for a long time in Portland, despite being kind of a multi-city thing. And then the BTA gave it up um, to local advocates in, like, I think 2000... I want to say 2008? Hmm.
0: Um, maybe right as they got to be you know, more conservative, their board changed a lot to being more conservative. Right. They wanted to paint a different, maybe a different picture about their organization and well, stuff and that, like that.
1: That was around the time Scott Bricker stepped down and... 2009 Mm -hmm. so i mean there was a huge change in leadership as someone Mm -hmm. who had been there for 10 years was leaving who had worked Mm -hmm. on a lot of the policy sides so i mean not to get too into the wonky workings of the DTAs.
2: you, you, you said that you you felt like there's a change in general in the population in portland that the you don't see as many portlanders talking about bikes as something that's dangerous at all
1: right well at least i feel like in my age group the when when people find out I'm really into bikes and want to have a conversation with me about why they do or don't b- ride bikes. You know, it used to be that people would, would be like, oh, I don't feel comfortable, or oh, I wish I could ride, but it's not safe around my house. But in my age group, I really don't find that. Instead, I hear, I'm too lazy, or I live too far, or I ride on the weekends, but I just don't ride to work. I don't hear that. The It's starting to move to the edges of, like, more... My coworkers and friends that are in their fifties and sixties are the people that are telling me that they don't feel safe, or that they only feel safe in their neighborhood, but they don't feel safe, you know, mm-hmm. leaving their neighborhood. Um,
2: Whereas twenty-two year olds or whatever the hell you are now is
1: are yeah, not saying that. Clearly twenty-two. Right. Uh, <laughs> the risk aversity in different age groups, right? So, so you're going to be more risk averse than an older age group. But this this goes back to that basic how do you design cycling facilities, the 8-to-80 eight concept, which an 8-year-old and an 80-year-old should be comfortable on them. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it all loops back in together, right? You can't have a conversation about cycling facilities without talking about death. It's just how much and mm-hmm. where and mm-hmm. who's responsible for having mm-hmm. a conversation about death.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I think, um, you know, a big, a big part of that comes back, comes back to narrative in the sense that if we never... I, I think it's a bad thing if we don't talk about it enough. And that's why I have an interest in talking about. It. And just to be a counterpoint to, to what you said a minute ago, there, Lily, is that anecdotal, you know, anecdotal evidence is just inherently risky to, to talk about because, right. like, anecdotally, I've I hear from young people, you know, pretty often that the reason they don't ride more is because they just don't feel safe right. on the roads. Uh, this this guy who was cutting my hair mentioned that He is a young guy. Uh, I talked actually, chief of staff for Mayor Hales told me that recently in a conversation. Uh, he's, he's Do not we have stats
1: on this for Portland alone? Because I know we have national statistics on why people are, you know, the interest but yeah. interested but concerned category. But I, I would love it if we could break out the idea of the interested yeah. but concerned person, which is the. Ooh. People that would would are interested in cycling but don't want to for any reason. Can we break those out for concerned but concerned for different reasons? Because because <laughs> right. like you, all of those sixty percent of people, right? They can't all be concerned just about dying. Some sure, of them might be right. concerned about the fact that they have helmet hair when they'd go yeah. to work, or yeah. mm-hmm. they're concerned about the fact that their bike would get well, stolen, which is often cited as one of the biggest deterrents yeah, for cycling to work. Yeah,
0: absolutely, I think you'd hear a range of things, and I don't even know if. My hunch, my strong hunch on following this stuff really closely for a long time, is that the dominant thing would be feeling of sa- would be lack of safety yeah. in riding. Some other things may get close, but I think that would always be the be the number one thing.
1: I think someone needs to do a nice comprehensive study on this. For well but, Portland. For Portland. Right. Not not for America in general, because that's I mean, that's exactly how we end up with the Portland complacency, right? right. Or like,
0: that's the tricky thing is that the complacent thing is so, I mean, it's, it's really seductive for political leaders, uh, for policymakers, city staff, and for advocates and professional advocates. Because for them to acknowledge that the thing they're devoted to making safe has some safety problems mm-hmm. is for them to acknowledge to some degree that they're, they're not fulfilling their obligations. They're not doing their jobs as well as they should. So there's a real tendency, and I think sort of maybe it's a psychological thing, for, for policymakers and advocates – that are essentially being paid to figure this stuff out, they have an inherent reason to not be vocal that it's a problem. Right. So
2: Just like anybody has an inherent reason not to realize problems with their job or their own failings. Absolutely. And, and an inherent need to always be selling themselves. Like Whenever anybody's talking about the work they're doing, they always have to be saying, oh, there's not enough of it done, but we're making progress. Right. right. So, how, so how would you, how would you think, have that be different? I difference?
1: think the key part of the problem with with this conversation in transportation that sets it aside from just a general, the kind of the general sentiment that you don't want to say that you're not doing a good enough job, is the idea that public perception shapes priorities in a very huge way when it comes to transportation. The way that we talk about transportation and transportation priorities influences our ability to get funding.
0: So, I mean, I would I would hear that and say... Well, then how's that working for you? We're not moving the needle, I don't think, fundamentally in the U.S. We're not changing the transportation paradigm. We're we're working around the edges. We're doing some small good things here and there. We're not fundamentally changing the dominant paradigm. And I think if most of the advocacy class and our leadership class is trying to get that funding by saying, it's a cool thing. Everybody's doing it. Look at our cycling rates are going up. Biking is booming. That only gets you so far. And I can look at actual actions and policy and funding and say, it's not getting you that far. If we had a massive, larger scale understanding and acknowledgement that the roads are inherently not okay, not safe for people eight to 80 to use on a daily basis, on a bike or on foot, I know that we would move the needle faster. And that, that's, sort of, that's where my interest lies in trying to make that conversation happen you know, more quickly, more urgently, with a little bit more direction toward this idea that um, you know, carnage is something we need to talk about. Right. It worked. It worked in the Netherlands. That's a key part of their story to some degree. I'm I'm not the person that will compare our experience to the Netherlands because it just doesn't make sense. The context totally different. different. A lot of advocates and a lot of people like to talk about that, but I I'm not one of them. But I do know that their mass mobilization about too many people dying on their streets in the 70s is what is still talked about in. Mm-hmm. PowerPoints today at right. cities all throughout the Netherlands is that these people said no more. And there's that poster of a woman holding a sign that says, stop killing our children. And that thing is... That's very sensational. It's a major right. piece of their history. But it wasn't... It's sensational. But I think in, in America, that term is a little bit loaded because it seems right. like it's being like, propaganda. Yeah. These were real Dutch people living in these cities that were... And Amsterdam is the best example that remembered a time when cars didn't rule their roads. That's mm-hmm. a key difference between the American experience right. is that nobody living today knows, I mean, all we've ever known is that cars dominate our streets for right. the most part. But in, in, in the Netherlands, it wasn't like that. So that's a person who remembered that from their youth, and saw it taken away, and said, heck no, we want our streets back. Hmm. So the I think the challenge for American advocates and for even political champions is to help Americans, more Americans, reach a similar point of saying, we have this different vision for our roads. We want that.
2: The vision where I mean, cars, is in, in a city, a car is a strange thing rather than a normal thing. Absolutely. Well, let's,
1: right. let's not make this about cars, necessarily. Here's Here's two comparisons that I think are interesting when you look at a sea change in public perception and moving policy. One that hasn't been very effective, which is firearms. There's definitely an open acknowledgement that we have too many firearm deaths in the United States, but there's a complete lack of agreement about how to accomplish it um and similar to to personal automobiles and access to personal automobiles a lot of americans think it's very important that they have access to firearms and that they have a right to have access to firearms but we acknowledge that like people are dying from firearms about the same number of oregonians are dying on our roadways as they are from firearms um but the conversation, while there's an acknowledgement that it's a problem, the conversation is not necessarily moving policy that well. However, you look at the way we approach drunk driving the, 30 years ago, the way people talked about drunk driving is, oh, well, maybe I drink a beer or two and then I drive home, but I'm a, you know, it's okay, to a complete villainization of any sort of drunk driving and that was entirely community advocates that were able to pass that and then that moved through policy that shifted to all of the states so you know and, and it was groups like mad mothers against drunk driving which is just the same like babies are dying on our roadways in the netherlands mothers okay, against well, drunk so driving is this so idea let's bring that
2: these like two, those two examples together what can we do as people in portland to fix this
0: I like your analogy to the drunk driving. I think the firearms one is so politically toxic that it doesn't even merit a good analogy because it's just on its whole other realm. But are like cars politics. politically toxic? No, but I think that the the reason why I think the drunk driving sort of trajectory of activism is a is a better analogy is because, well, like you said, it was it was sort of citizen based. I think in Mothers Against Drunk Driving, but I think a key difference from the bicycle uh, activism part is that with the drunk driving, since Everybody in America, every policymaker and every leader in America drives a car. It's their dominant way they get around, for the most part. It like I think it hit home in a different way. The challenge in America for bicycle advocates is that's not the case for bicycling. Right. Nobody has firsthand experience doing this thing, which which brings me to what Michael just asked. I think one of the key things that can be done to help heighten this awareness of streets being unsafe and that things are happening on the roads is to get people out on bikes. More decision makers need to ride. Right now in Portland, nobody on city council rides a bike to work. Hmm. No one. And if you if you peel away the onion about their riding habits, none of them even ride for transportation. I would almost guarantee it. I don't know that for a fact, but I would. It's a strong assumption. Right. They ride on Sunday parkways. They're very capable riders. You know, Commissioner Fish, obviously, Commissioner Hale is always in a picture. But they don't like ride to the store. They don't ride to meetings. It's a totally different experience from being escorted around in a big group ride right. to facing. These dangers yourself, so I think, you know, so what can we do? Get people out on bikes that matter. Get policymakers out on bikes is one thing. If you we're, know?
1: But I think I think if we're just also just talking about general roadway safety, everybody uses roadways. Every possible policymaker uses roadways, and more Oregonians are dying on our roadways in cars than they are on bicycles or in pedestrian deaths. So why why do we keep? Why haven't we shifted the needle yet to be like? our highways are dangerous. Like, why are our highways going through the center of towns? Or, you know, like, Mm. why hasn't that changed if everybody is experiencing the fact, you know, and, like, one in two people has had a close friend or family member die on a roadway. Why is that?
0: Well, I think it goes back to the acceptance thing, too, and it goes back to the fact that, um, you know, People in America, the car culture is so pervasive, they just cannot fathom life without it. So, in order to acknowledge it's a problem, it leads you to thinking, how would I not have this thing? And it's just like this cognitive dissonance that happens of like like acceptance and it gets to the collateral damage thing. Some people just think, oh, it happens sometimes. It's really tragic. And then look how the way, you know, look at the way they're handled by both state officials and stuff and the media. It's just a tragedy. It's just an accident. Someone fell asleep behind the wheel, went over the center line, killed three people in RVs. It was just a sad accident. Not saying, Oh my God! This phone thing is a major issue. We need to address it head on. Right. You know. So, that's a difference. See, I think the other difference between why people don't get all fired up about you know all the all the deaths that happen from, from people driving is there's no there's no real auto advocacy in the same way we have bike advocacy. I mean, you have AAA, but yeah. they're not they're kind of high level policy. They don't turn people out because a bunch of bunch of people have died in Estacada or right. Highway 101, which is basically like a you know a roulette. Russian roulette driving out there. So everything you, ends up
1: happening on smaller neighborhood well, advocacy that, levels if it does happen. Yeah,
0: and, and most of the people that get killed in cars get killed in rural roads where there's no residential density. So right. you don't have sort of neighborhood activists who are like, not on our streets. So right, right. I don't want people to be, you know, so despondent about this issue and, and feeling like there's nothing that can be done. I mean, I think Michael earlier brought up some really good points about how we're talking about this because we care about this stuff as reporters and activists and stuff. But overall, in terms of exposure, the streets are safe, much right. safe, and it's much safer to get out on your bike than any other thing. I'll just say that. So I think, you know, in terms of what what can people do, I think people should you know feel good about the fact important. There's a lot of people working on these issues, and there's also a lot people can do in their neighborhoods in terms of becoming a little more, you know, engaged with activism right. around this stuff. We, we have a responsive city. They love when people call them and complain, whether it's speeding, other issues of, of, of you know of dangerous streets in your neighborhood. So I should Absolutely. be calling
2: eight two three safe to yeah. the 823 city anytime. Anytime something I notice something that could be better. That's, that's an
1: Florida, for the most part. Yeah, yeah and, and if you it. wanted, I mean, there's a lot of that now there's funding for these high crash corridor committees that are looking at specific mm-hmm. p- specific corridors that have high crash rates w- within our city and looking at how we can reduce that. Mm-hmm. And they even, I mean, when you're on a high crash corridor committee. ODOT gives you a chart that shows you how many serious injuries and fatalities are going to be reduced by their estimation mm-hmm. and their projections for each type of, of mm. improvement. it's pretty cool. So they are they are thinking about this in terms of human numbers. It's just a matter of doing the advocacy, doing the work.
0: Yeah, and I think the most powerful thing people that are listening can take away is just don't accept it. I was just in the Netherlands. They decided not to accept it. They did some pretty relatively easy policy things they priced driving up they have to pay for parking you have to you know there's a lot of things we can start to talk about that would move this conversation forward but it starts with not accepting the current level of danger on the streets and fatalities
1: any anything to add
2: i think uh the conversation will will continue and but it's great to talk to you guys about this and in some depth i hope it's been fun to listen to should we move along to our closing bit which is our low car tip of the month jonathan i saw this on your twitter the other day and i really wanted to share with others because i thought it was totally awesome
0: yeah so i'm kind of into this hat thing i've been wearing a hat more often now and i've got this little carabiner that i hooked to this little cable guide on the front of my bike and it just so happens to hook around my hat so when i'm riding i can just hook my hat onto my bike and there it is when i get off i can put it back on Just hangs right on the handlebar yeah
1: Nice. Huh. I've been thinking recently about the fact that I want to just integrate a hat box onto my bike, Mm. because I wear a lot of really ridiculous hats, and then I can't carry them around. So maybe I should try this hat chip instead of a hat box.
0: Well, Lily, in your new bike, you've got enough cargo space to put all kinds of boxes.
1: (laughs) That's true. Yeah.
2: Uh, one of our future topics that we've got chalked up is bicycles and fashion, so we may get to that in a future month. For now, I think that
1: is our show.
0: We've done mm-hmm. plenty of damage yeah. already. <laughs> uh, so to speak.
1: Right. And that's our show. You can subscribe to the show at bikeportland.org slash podcast.
0: I'm Jonathan Maas, Bike Portland's yes. publisher. I'm Michael Anderson, Bike Portland's news editor.
1: And I'm Lillian Kerbake, your podcast producer. Thanks for listening, and remember to exit through the back
2: pass on the left and don't forget to thank your bus driver